Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, it snowed in Vancouver in a supposed G7 nation. We look at the region's appalling response to a few centimeters of snow and hear from residents stuck in a hellish 12-hour commute. Plus, analysis paralysis, it's not just the snow. Canada has a massive $150 billion infrastructure deficit. Why are we content with not building and leaving suburbanites stuck in traffic? And the days of our lives, Surrey Police Soap Opera continues. Peter German joins us to discuss how this political saga finally ends. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. It's Wednesday, November 30th. Welcome to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Hope you're doing well. Stick with us. We'll get you home on this beautiful day. I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe today's commute will go a lot better than last night's. As we all know, Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley are still dealing with the aftermath of a snowstorm that dumped up to 20 centimeters of snow on the ground. There was chaos on the roads and bridges in every region of the Lower Mainland last night as vehicles were calling or at a complete standstill. Now, the Alex Fraser Bridge, for an extended time, didn't see traffic being able to get through thanks to many spun-out vehicles and stuck semis. Now, with lanes, when the lanes were starting to open up after midnight, drivers were warned to, uh, to still expect long delays and hours later, heavy traffic continued to crawl. Now, on the George Massey Tunnel, where I had some experience last night, and I'll share that in a few minutes, uh, lots of problems there, including an accident which forced the, uh, forced the uh, southbound side of Highway 99 to be closed. It meant many hours of sitting and waiting for drivers, even well past midnight and into the overnight hours when the snow turned into a light shower. Now, even when you were able to get through the tunnel, Highway 99 southbound to Delta and into South Surrey was a crawl. Now, imagine that, folks. Snow in late November in Canada in a supposed G7 country. How did that happen? Why weren't we able to deal with it? I mean, it was incredible when uh, you follow social media and you hear those stories. It was absolutely horrendous. Take a listen to the commuters trying to make it home last night. Tonight in the Vancouver, BC area, the only Canadian city that never prepares for snow or has any idea what to do when snow comes. Classic Vancouver loses its mind when snow hits. I've been stuck on the highway for almost, actually more than seven hours from Richmond to Surrey. And they said that on Alex Fraser there are a couple of buses and semi that spun out. I totally get that, but seriously, seven hours, you still can't fix it. That's insane. I left my work at four and it's 11.35. Is this a lane? I'm pretty sure it is because I drive this road all the time. That guy's driving with any lights on because here we go, in BC, this is what we do. One in the morning, this is what you get. do the job when you're in town. It was a complete mess. Government was not prepared. Hence, afternoon commuters ran anywhere, commutes ran, ran anywhere from 6 to 12 hours. Think about that for a second. 6 to 12 hours. This was, for me, uh, a clear example that government wasn't prepared or thinking perhaps, oh, look, this will blow over in a day, it'll melt, we don't really need to worry about. What they did do was they didn't respect the time of hardworking taxpayers parents, students, small business owners, and immigrants. And I want to put this in context for you. We're a city of two and a half million people in the Northern Hemisphere. I've lived in big cities. I've dealt with traffic before. I lived in India, Mumbai, a city of 25 million people. The longest rush hour I saw on an afternoon or had to deal with was five hours. I've lived in China, Beijing, a city of 19 million people. The longest rush hour I had to deal with, four and a half hours. Last night, 
after pledge day, I stayed downtown, had dinner, left at 8 o'clock thinking, all right, maybe that will help. Well, guess what? Now, of course, there's a bottleneck at the uh, Oak, Oak Street Bridge. I was heading to back to Tawasson, and that I expected. Yes, it took a little while, but boy, that was nothing. That was just preparation for what was coming on Highway 99 when you cross over from the Oak Street Bridge. We moved a little bit, and there would be times we didn't move whatsoever, and it was icy. Boy, was it icy. At one point, I was underneath an overpass, and the semi behind me, the driver pops out. He goes, can you move ahead 10 feet? And he asked the driver ahead of me to move 10 feet just so we could get under the overpass because his own truck was starting to slide because of the ice. It wasn't safe. It was a tad dangerous uh, when somebody in a semi has to come up to you and ask you to move forward because he's worried about the truck. I had left at 8 o'clock last night to head home. I was expecting maybe two, three hours. Let's, bat, worst case scenario, No. I got home last night at 4 a.m., an eight-hour commute in a city of two and a half million people with a bit of snow, a dusting of snow, really, in the grand scheme of things. Canada, winter, who, who would have known? It's appalling that we've allowed our city to get to the point that we can't deal with a little bit of snow. Just think about that for a second for a moment. We spent $10 million for this entire region for snow removal. Montreal, $187 million. Toronto, $109 Calgary, $52 million. We spend $10 million for the entire Metro Vancouver region. Yes, it snows less here, but when it does, it shuts down this city, and that's part of the problem. We really need to start looking at fundamentally dealing with these situations in a much different way. First of all, just moving traffic. There has to be better pra- best practices somewhere else, other cities, where they, when there is an accident, we move uh, the cars, vehicles, semis out of the way in a much faster way. Does that mean more tow trucks near choke points? Perhaps it does. Do we have to invest in it? Perhaps we do. But we need to be looking at that very issue because it happens way too often, way too often. Snow removal, that's number two. Why does it take so long? Why do some cities do it well and others not? It's a balkanized governance structure once again. Vancouver may do it well one time, Surrey doesn't. Surrey does it well, guess what? Coquitlam doesn't do it well. There's no way of working together just for basic snow removal. I mean, did we not learn anything from the last atmospheric river? What if an earthquake were to hit? Imagine that for a second. Here's Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, uh, upon hearing about this snowstorm coming and he told us what his small community did. Now, I think anyone with a weather app on their phone knew that snow was coming in the forecast. So well before we experienced what we did yesterday, uh, our crews were already prepared. Our trucks were ready to go. Our supplies were in place. Uh, Everything was prepped. Our crews were scheduled to be able to provide 24-hour coverage. And we had a plan. We had a plan in terms of the routes that were going to be prioritized based on local conditions. And then we went and executed our plan. So it's not rocket science. (laughs) Apparently it is here in Vancouver. I don't see too many other mayors stepping up and talking about what they did or didn't do. Some communities did it better. I I, I don't, uh, uh, I'm not saying they don't. I know first responders work very hard. I see them out there. So right now, today, we should have the Minister of Transportation talking to British Columbians. 75% of this city is suburban. And yesterday, your provincial government and some municipal governments didn't respect those very suburbanites. I'm expecting Rob Fleming to speak today, but he's not around. So what are we going to do? Let's hand it to a bureaucrat no one's heard of. Here's Janelle Strait, Regional Deputy Director of Highway Services, and her reasoning and what we should have done 
when it comes to the snow event yesterday. At the end of the day, what we what we need to rely on is making sure that when folks are traveling on the roads, that they have their vehicle equipped to do so safely. And if they if they don't have a vehicle that's able to travel safely, look at alternate options, be it transit, be it a, a taxi service or an Uber service, or or frankly, stay home if you don't need to be out on the roads. Well, respectfully, Ms. Strait, uh, eight hours, eight hour commute home. I'm not going to be helped by transit. I'm not going to be helped by Uber. But snow removal would have helped. The ability for first responders to get to that accident, the tunnel, quickly would have helped, as I've said. What's the best practices when it comes to removing accidents? What what cities do it well in North America? Number two, snow removal, which I've already said. And number three, could you imagine if it was a 10-lane bridge today, which would have been completed a few months ago? At least you could have had one lane open out of those 10 lanes, or sorry, out of the five lanes heading southbound. You're not going to do that with a 60-year-old tunnel, are we? That's point number three. We do not build enough infrastructure in this city and in this country. There's a $150 billion infrastructure shortage. And yesterday was a glaring reminder of that. We're going to cover that specific issue at 4.05. But once again, removing accidents quickly. One, two, snow removal. Two, three, infrastructure. There is a deficit when it comes to our infrastructure. And I cannot believe a first world country, a G7 nation, and a bit of snow... And we had that mess yesterday. Once again, don't worry about talk show hosts not getting home. Worry about mothers who are trying to desperately pick up their kids from daycare. Or that truck driver, many of them immigrants, who've got bills to pay, still trying to find their way in this country. Stuck there idling for six, seven, eight hours. Parents, small business owners. This is a failing of municipal government and provincial government. Prior to the news break, we were talking a little bit about um, last night's uh, commute and part of the challenge, of course, is infrastructure. Uh, and I was uh, talking a little bit about the fact that, look, uh, it may not have solved all the problems, but in the case of the George Massey Tunnel, imagine if we had that 10-lane bridge built today. Perhaps one of those lanes could have been used to allow traffic through as um, the first responders dealt with the accident um, uh, they're at the uh, Massey Tunnel and, of course, all the, the, the Steveson overpass as well. Because the, the project itself, uh, the original project, uh, not only included the bridge, but also included uh, overpass improvements as well in Steveson and then further up and also including um, HOV lanes uh, as well uh, for for uh, buses. Now, I do want to say uh, that that tunnel, it took a very long time for the BC Liberals to get to a point of approving that bridge. But they finally did it. But what happened, of course, the NDP cancelled it when they came in. And now we're talking about um, uh, another tunnel which uh, with 20% less capacity. What it speaks to, of course, is that infrastructure is very important in this com- uh, country. It's the physical backbone of Canada's economy. Uh, our roads, bridges and transportation systems, if you think about it, bind our communities together. Now, the challenge is that Canada's infrastructure has aged. Much of our current infrastructure was built in the 1950s and 60s. And our infrastructure shortfall has a real impact on our communities not just in economic numbers like GDP, but we saw that last night as well. Think about the fact all those small business owners uh, who couldn't get home uh, or those folks driving uh, those large semis, delivering goods and services. Many of them uh, are are immigrants uh, as well. Uh, Here are some headlines to give you a sense of our infrastructure deficit uh, that were provided to me. Uh, World Bank in 2020 in a report, here's the headline, Canada ranks number 64 
in the world in the length of time it takes to approve a construction project. That's a World Bank uh, headline in 2020. Here's one from the Federation of Canadian Municipalities in 2018. 40% of Canada's roads and bridges are in fair, poor, or very poor condition. Canada is facing an infrastructure deficit of over $150 billion. Here's another headline from the City of Delta in 2017. The Massey Tunnel will not withstand a major earthquake. Uh, Here's one from the Globe and Mail in February of 2022. The cost of rebuilding after BC's historic floods in 2021 is nearly $9 billion. That all speaks to our infrastructure deficit. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the infrastructure deficit is Chris Gardner. He's the president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jess. Great to be on your show. Uh, So let's start with the first question. Did you get home safe yesterday? Well, you know, I was uh, at an event downtown and I live downtown, Uh so um, I didn't get stuck in the the commute, uh, but we did have a number of colleagues who were... uh, who were at that event, and they live out in uh, in Langley and Surrey, and uh, we just ended up uh, booking hotel rooms uh, because as we put in the um, um, the uh, the route back through Google Maps, uh, it was projecting a five to six hour drive. Uh, so we wanted them to be safe and booked them rooms, and then they went back this morning. Wow, uh, this I mean I I know someone people are going to say, well, you know, you can't guarantee that a 10-lane bridge would have been able to, to, to get those folks through. I, I maintain it would have helped. But I think the bigger issue is, is this is uh, infrastructure deficit, not only in the city, but across this country. Yeah, you know, you, your numbers are very compelling. $150 billion infrastructure deficit, the World Bank number that we're, we're 64 in the world in the length of time it takes to approve an infrastructure project. 63 countries can figure it out faster than we can. It's an embarrassing statistic. And, and if you think about what happened to the aftermath of the floods last year, um, the port of Metro Vancouver, the largest port in the country, was completely cut off from the rest of Canada by rail and by road for seven days. Um, and so what's happened as we the, the COVID-19 global pandemic revealed how fragile our supply chains are. And these extreme, more extreme weather events that we're having are bringing, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost for Canadians and certainly uh, people in British Columbia. But our infrastructure is aging. It's past its due date. And so what's at stake for us uh, is the safety of people, um, our supply chains, our quality of life. And the investment in jobs and opportunity that we're losing because our infrastructure can't handle the growth of our economy. And, uh, and so our competitiveness is, uh, is being impacted. Hmm. Um, why do you think that is? You would think a bridge would be non-political or a port. But we somehow in this country, and maybe it's just my, my mindset, my thinking, we seem to have politicized everything now. Yeah, we've, we've, the, the process of building things has become very political, uh, and that reveals itself in the, uh, in the challenge in getting housing supply onto the market, um, because that involves, in a lot of cases, a discussion around density. And on the one hand, people say we need more housing, and then on the other hand, they'll say, well, not in our neighbourhood. Um, it's, if it's a new road, if it's a new bridge, people will then complain about you know, the design of it, whether it, it whether it's going to be more cars on the road. Uh, all of those things factor into the discussion, and so as a result of all all of all of the opposition that that comes out, the the length of time it takes to review and approve projects, um, we um, we've got a reputation that's growing globally as a jurisdiction where it's 
extremely difficult to get to yes. We, we get to know very easily in Canada. We've lost the ability to get the yes, and it's impacting everything. And we're seeing with events like last night. Uh, look, at the, look at the Patella Bridge. We're replacing a four-lane, uh, 85-year-old bridge with a four-lane new bridge. Great, we're getting a new bridge, but we're not increasing capacity in any meaningful way. Um, and the decision to cancel the new, if that new bridge that was planned by the previous government had been built, we would be driving over it now. And uh, we've lost 10 years, and we will all we will all pay the price. In one way or another, we're going to pay the price in terms of more time on the road. Um, incidents like last night, um, our supply chains will be impacted. Uh, we've got to get out of our way and start building things again. Yeah. Last night, I think it was an hour six, and I think I, I had heard all the Christmas carols I could, so I started texting friends in other parts of the world. And uh, a buddy of mine in Dubai texted me, and he sent me a picture of um, just uh, just uh, near the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building, which is right next to the Dubai Mall. It's a very pretty place, very touristy place, and and all that sort of thing. And I know, look, it's a, it's a, it's a city run uh, by a royal family. It's not a democracy, and I get all that. But I was just admiring that this was a seaport at one time and about 40 years ago. And today, they've built an entire economy around finance and tourism and infrastructure. I had another friend text me a little while after during this commute from hell. And he texted me pictures of the Mumbai-Pune expressway. It's a three-hour expressway from a city, both cities. And I've driven in. It's wonderful. But I'm looking at developing nations, um, and it reminds you that the, the, the infrastructure beyond healthcare and education, which is the basis of a very strong society, healthy society and educated society, but that third pillar in many ways is infrastructure. And developing nations and other nations around the world seem to be figuring that out. Yet here in this country, as you say, we keep getting in each other's way. We don't build like we used to. Yeah, you know, if you go back to, um, you know, how, how we built Canada, we, we built railways, we built the St. Lawrence Seaway, uh, we connected the country. We had a reputation of being builders, and we're losing that reputation. We've now got a reputation where it's very, very difficult to get investment projects approved in this country, to get infrastructure built in this country, because we're always saying no. And there's always, a mil- there's always good reasons to say no if you listen to those who oppose all of these projects. But the cascading in- effect of all of these no's is the position we're in now, where it just takes one weather event, uh, one or two accidents on an evening or morning commute, and the entire lower mainland, um, the engine of our provincial economy, comes to a grinding halt. And um, we've got to do better. We have got to do better. We've got to understand the importance of this in terms of a safety perspective, supply chains, jobs and opportunity. And we've got to start building things again. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Chris, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Great. Thank you very much. I don't know if you heard Christy Gordon there during the news break. She was uh, talking about another weather event and potentially asking motors to stay off the road Friday afternoon into Friday evening. We're a city of two and a half million people, home to 55% of British Columbia. And we're being told to stay off the roads because of snow in Canada, in a G7 nation. Just think about that for a second. Um, we don't spend enough on snow clearing, $10 million for the entire Metro Vancouver region. That's clearly not enough. We don't have enough equipment. And our economy suffers, our people suffer. 
parents who have to pick up their kids suffer. Small business owners suffer. Immigrants driving, working hard, uh, who rely on our transit system suffer. Uh, it speaks to uh, also our ability to deal with emergencies. This is snow in late fall, and there will probably be more as we get to winter in Canada, late November, early December, and we're having difficulty with it. What if an earthquake occurred? What if there was another atmospheric river? How do we deal with these natural um, events when we can't deal with 20 centimeters of snow? It's a question that John Clegg asks himself. John Clegg is an emeritus professor at Simon Fraser University who studies natural hazards with a focus on BC's south coast. He joins us now. John, thank you for speaking to us today. Uh, My pleasure, Jazz. Well, I I must admit, uh, I did get stuck in uh, that uh, absolute craziness uh, last night, uh, eight (laughs) hours to to get home. And I thought I was being smart. I went and had dinner downtown and then said, okay, I'll let some of the traffic dissipate. I left downtown at eight. I live in Tawasson and uh, Mm -hmm. I got home at 4 a.m. It was an eight our commute for me last night. Oh my God! And then you came to work today. <laughs> so uh, you know, I know, I know, I'm not looking for sympathy here, but I think there's a bigger issue here. It is beyond just the huge uh, snowfall. Your thoughts, and when you, you know, reading the news last night and re- reading it today, your thoughts on the broader issue of emergency preparedness and being prepared just for emergency situations. What 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 goes through your mind? Because that's what you do. What, what what are you thinking? Well, I do worry about extreme events. Um, Now, of course, extreme events are rare events, um, but, uh, uh, you know, the worst case kind of event that Mother Nature can throw at you would uh, be a real concern. I I don't think we're prepared for such an event. Now, you can look back at the atmospheric river event last year, and that was uh, a very rare event. You know, it's the first of that type that we've seen on that scale. And we were just totally like deers caught in the headlights of a car. We just weren't ready for it. We didn't anticipate what could happen in in an extreme event like that. So I worry about that uh, for not only uh, meteorological events, weather events, but also for earthquakes, because we've never really experienced a damaging earthquake in Vancouver, but we know that uh, eventually we will. And uh, given what happened last night and what happened happens frequently, uh, I really do worry about our preparedness. Um, we're pretty good at reacting when a disaster happens, but it would be better if we uh, were better prepared for them. I think you raise a very good point. Uh, you know, as I was uh, uh, sitting there with time on my hands yesterday on Highway 99, I was thinking about could there have been better traffic management? Do we need to spend more money at some of our choke points where we're able to clear uh, some of these uh, accidents out faster? What are other cities doing in regards to best practices? I was also thinking of just snow removal. Yes, we don't spend a lot in the region. I think it's $4 million for the city of Vancouver and maybe $10 million for the entire metro Vancouver area compared to well over $100 million for cities like Montreal, where, of course, it does snow more. But perhaps we do need to spend more money on infrastructure. We may not use some of those trucks, but when we do need them, we should have them around. It should be the cost of doing business. And three, the other thing I was looking at was infrastructure. Like, you know, the the tunnel is 60 years old, over 60 years old. Perhaps a 10-lane bridge would have helped in that case where one lane could have been opened. I don't know. But, But it seems like 
you nailed it on the head. We're reactive to everything that we are not being proactive on some of these issues. Well, yeah, you know, um, I, I have a little bit of empathy for uh, the provincial government and for municipalities because they have so many demands mm. on the public purse, you know, so many problems we have. But one of them, a very big one, is, you know, our infrastructure isn't totally uh, uh, up to snuff. I guess you could probably say that about any large metropolitan area, but you raise a very good point in terms of removing snow. Um, you know, we uh, are only uh, just barely above Victoria, which is notoriously bad for removing snow from their streets. Um, you know, we've also got this problem of terrible traffic to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you have sort of a, an extreme meteorological event, like an ice storm or a snowstorm, uh, that just calm, you know, the fact that we have crowded streets during rush hour just invites the situation that we had yesterday. And I don't know what the solution to that is. You know, governments are struggling to keep up with uh, population growth and uh, with rapid transit. But again, it does come back to that's expensive. Um, and you've got to kind of weigh it in balance with all the other demands on the public purse. So there's no easy solution to it, but I do think we need to, to think these things through because we can expect to have extreme events of a variety of types in the future. And, uh, you know, another one, another example would be flooding. What are we going to do if we have a disastrous flood in Metro Vancouver? I don't think we're prepared for that either. Our dikes are not adequate for the, the worst that we could experience in terms of flooding. It's not a very uh, optimistic picture. You know, I just think that uh, we need to kind of, at at the very least, begin to be a little more proactive and think these things through and decide on a kind of a a cost-benefit basis what would be appropriate in terms of public expenditures, both at the municipal level and at the provincial level. Yeah, no, I think think you're absolutely right, and I I would agree with you. It it is ultimately a decision on where your dollars should go. So uh, having been a former MLA, and I understand the challenges of of um, spending those dollars appropriately and getting maximum benefit from them, but I think there's something fundamentally wrong when citizens in Canada in winter... Uh, are are getting home eight to twelve hours after, right? We're a G seven nation still. I mean, that should matter. And I'll put this in context for you. I've lived in India and in China, and M- Mumbai is a city of twenty five million people. And the longest yeah. commute I had was five hours, uh, and in Beijing, city of nineteen million, it was four and a half hours. Somehow, Vancouver, two and a half million people, I had eight hours. Now it's it's, it's I'm hoping it's a one off because I really tried to remain patient. But uh, I think you really do hit it on the head. We've got to sort of decide what our priorities are and start putting some dollars behind it too that's ultimately- i hear you jazz it's uh <laughs> you know we don't do a, a good enough job in sort of managing uh big issues like traffic and uh um you know extreme events of course they're rare and that's why it's difficult to for many people to take them seriously but we know we can experience floods in the future we can experience strong wind storms we can uh, get heavy snowfalls um, we can get earthquakes we live in a very dynamic part of the world. So, you know, we got to pony up and spend some money in preparing for that. Yeah. Well, John, I really want to thank you. I'm not sure if this was an interview or a therapy session for me, but either way, I, really, <laughs> I, I enjoyed talking to you, Jazz. <laughs> Likewise, my friend. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay, you bet.
Well, on Monday, we learned Surrey's new mayor and council have taken the next step in their plan to scrap the Surrey Police Service and maintain the RCMP as the city's police force. Now, Peter German is a former RCMP deputy commissioner for Western Canada. Uh, he will now consult city staff and develop a plan to be sent to the Minister of Public Safety, Mike Farnworth, for the final approval uh, in January. Mr. German is the president of the International Centre for Criminal Law Reform. You'll also know or have heard his name because he is an anti-money laundering expert. He is best known as the author of the Dirty Money Reports, as well as serving as the former deputy commissioner of the Royal Canadian, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining us today. It's always a pleasure, Jess. Uh, well, you know, this is the, uh, I refer to this as the days of our lives of public policy, this Surrey policing uh, issue. It has been going on for a very long time. Uh, you've been tapped uh, to uh, help uh, the municipality. Uh, can you sort of give me a, a, a broad sense of what your specific, what your role will be? Right. Well, I've been asked to, you know, provide strategic advice on the uh, the project that's underway with the city of uh, Surrey and the RCMP. Uh, in terms of maintaining the RCP as the police force of jurisdiction. Um, so that involves uh, assisting a really excellent team that the city and the RCMP have put together in terms of documentation uh, and, you know, project management. They've got some very uh, short deadlines uh, for council and the province. Um, so I'm there to assist them in any way that I can. So in this case, is, is your goal to look at uh, also just the, uh, the boots on the ground? That you know, There's been complaints that under the RCMP there aren't enough boots on the ground and certainly the Surrey Police Service haven't gotten there. Is there any part of your terms of reference where you can look at some of the longer-term challenges, the structural challenges, that whatever force moves forward, uh, they can deal with those, deal with those issues? Well, I think both the city and the RCMP are, are well aware of, you know, that the future um, may, may uh, involve more police officers, uh, more programs and so forth. But we're looking specifically at the transition back, so to speak, uh, in terms of maintaining the RCMP. Uh, and so we're looking at the, the levels that exist today and what it would take to maintain that level uh, in terms of the RCMP. And um, so, and so the future is certainly relevant, but more on point, we're looking at the transition at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some who have said, and including uh, BC's former Attorney General Wally Opal, that that RCMP contract model is outdated, uh, and we need to be moving towards more of a, um, uh, a localized policing structure, not just municipal, but in many ways a Metro Vancouver Police Department of Vancouver Island and, and for one for the rest of the BC, that this is the direction we need to be headed into, and many inquiries have said that, that keeping the RCMP is actually in some ways a move backwards. What would you say to that? Well, I'd certainly disagree. Um, Justice Opal, uh, I have great respect for, uh, for Justice Opal, and we've uh, had a number of discussions on this point, and I don't think we're that far apart. Um, you know, he's also been quite complimentary of the integration model that's used by police forces, uh, both RCMP and municipal, in the Lower Mainland. In fact, the policing system here works quite well, and every municipality is able to choose the model that it wants. Um, so, it, it, in my mind, uh, it does work. And, and furthermore, uh, in terms of the RCMP, uh, the RCMP has tailored uh, the contracts and how they deliver on the contracts to individual communities. And you will see yeah, very strong, um, a strong relationship between the municipal councils 
and the RCMP detachments. Uh, similarly, you see strong relations between those that have municipal police forces. Uh, communities seem to come together with their local police, whether it's municipal or RCMP. And certainly the RCMP in Surrey has gone above and beyond, uh, I would suggest, in terms of a lot of the community outreach, mental health programs and so forth that uh, they've been undertaking during some really stressful and busy times in the last couple of years. Does this conversation also, though, not, 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 not as well, point to the fact that the RCMP has some structural challenges. It is still an organization, the paramilitary organization, where its headquarters are based uh, in Ottawa. It is asked to do big city policing in Surrey, but it's also asked to do uh, small town local policing in central and northern British Columbia. It's also asked to be an investigative agency when it comes to white collar criminals. It's also asked to be something similar to, let's say, an FBI uh, similar to the United States. It's asked to do so many different things that it's very difficult for it to have an expertise in any of them. Uh, and that's why more municipal or locally uh, connected police are more important than having this one large entity that has been pulled, uh, that, that continues to be pulled in so many different directions. Yeah, I, I hear you. I'd also flip that uh, suggestion on its head and say that one of the benefits of having a national police force that also provides contract services is that you have the benefit of those different business lines. And certainly from the point of view of police officers in the RCMP, you're able to you know, develop both in a municipal environment, you can stay there if you want, or in the provincial or in the federal. I think the big issue in all of this is not the number of mandates, uh, because in many ways they interlock uh, together. The, the big issue is proper resourcing. And we've just seen a, an announcement by the Premier uh, here in British Columbia to provide extra funding to the RCMP to deal with their unfunded positions. This is really significant because it allows the RCMP to presumably staff up to its, its uh, actual numbers. And uh, so I think in many of these arguments, it boils down to having the proper budget, the proper human resources. Mm-hmm. Do you still believe beyond Surrey for a moment that even with a sort of a balkanized uh, uh, policing structure, and, and, and I'll be the first to admit a balkanized political structure as well when it comes to municipal government, we have a mishmash of, of uh, municipal police and NRCMP that do you think overall that still works uh, collectively for the metro vancouver region because crooks don't care whether it's rcmp or if it's a municipal police force they're going to go jurisdiction jurisdiction do you think that actually works still this day and age Uh, yeah jazz uh i believe it does work uh and you just have to look at the integrated uh teams that are out there uh if you look at the integrated homicide team which has been around for a number of years does Mm -hmm. excellent work it's the largest homicide team as I understand it, in the country. At least it certainly was during my time, and I believe it still is. Uh, so, And this is an amalgam of RCMP and municipal officers working together. And you see that with uh, traffic collision. You see that with forensic identification and other areas. So where there is a clear need for cross-jurisdictional work, you see that. The only times in this country where uh, police forces have disappeared has tended to be when municipalities themselves amalgamate. Um, But without amalgamation of municipalities, you do actually, I would suggest, run into more problems with a regional model than you would with municipalities having their own choice of policing. Mm -hmm. Uh, In regards to your work in Surrey, give us a sense of what your timeline will be uh, in regards to reporting back to Surrey and how you see things transpiring over the next few weeks. Right. Well, 
you know, again, it's 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 not so much me as as the team that's been assembled uh, and has been doing a lot of work uh, for quite some time. Uh, December twelfth is the next council meeting. So on the the previous council meeting, which was uh, just a couple of days ago on Monday, the uh, the mayor and council agreed to. Uh, they, they endorsed prior, priorities, goals, and objectives for the uh, the undertaking, and um, endorsed a proposed framework, and said, "Come back December 12th." And so, council will review the the report that the uh, the group is putting together on December 12th, and then, assuming that there is agreement with it, it, it goes on to the provincial government, and the provincial government has to make sure that whatever Surrey produces. Uh, make sense from a provincial point of view, provincial policing point of view. Um, does, you know, are the resources available? How is the municipality going to do that? And how does that um, uh, mix? How does that work in terms of the larger policing strategies in the province? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think Surrey residents should feel comfortable with this process? Because there's going to be a lot who are cynical, not because of the work you're doing, but just the political side of things, uh, whether it was the last mayor or the present mayor, this thing has been a political football from, from, from day one. Do you think Surrey residents need to worry about policing in their city, whether or not it's up to snuff, even today, because of what's, what's transpired? Right. So uh, what I would say is uh, I would not distinguish between people that wear yellow stripes and people that wear uh, blue stripes on their pants. All the municipal and the RCP officers that we have in this province, in the lower mainland, you know, are, are good police officers and they're trained up to a, a standard that is, is not only adequate, but it's effective and efficient. And that's what you have in Surrey. Uh, Surrey is policing with the complement that it is funded for, and that is Predominantly RCMP, but about 160 of the Surrey police officers as well. So that model is working. It's under the command of the RCMP. The RCMP has continued to be the police force of jurisdiction through all of this. So they take responsibility ultimately to the citizens for what what occurs. Um, and uh, so no reason to believe that citizens should be at all concerned about the level of policing. And what the anomaly, though is that you've got essentially two police chiefs and two structures, uh, despite the fact that operational command remains with the RCP. And that's what we're trying to resolve uh, through this uh, process. Hmm. Well, it's a very interesting pos- uh, process uh, indeed, and look forward to chatting with you in, in the weeks ahead as as, uh, as we move closer to a, to a decision. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Jazz, at, at any time, and thank you so much for what you do. Thank you, especially for your programming yesterday, I should mention, in terms of youth. It's just uh, amazing. Thank you so much, and uh, look forward to chatting with you because it's going to be a very interesting few weeks. All the best to you, Peter. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. This time of the year, most lettuce in Metro Vancouver comes from California, where issues with low crop yield and dry weather have created a severe shortage, which is being felt across Canada. Many Metro Vancouver grocery stores are having trouble, of course, sourcing uh, lettuce. And when they do, it's, they buy it at an inflated price. A head of iceberg lettuce that normally sold for a dollar now has a price tag of five ninety nine in some stores. Chopped romaine, uh, almost $7. And a bag of three romaine hearts, get ready to pay, well, $9. Now, currently, Canada imports... Most of its lettuce from other other countries in 2020, Canada is the second largest importer of lettuce in the world, which is amazing, really, bringing in $420 million, 
dollars, nearly half a billion dollars in lettuce from the U.S. alone. Now, recently, I sent an article to the Minister of Agriculture, Lana Popham, about the Netherlands and how it is becoming sort of the epicenter when it comes to the issue of food security. They have a huge ag tech industry, uh, and of course, they do a tremendous amount of research and development in that area. Well, the minister sent me a message back saying that she visited uh, recently visited a business in South Delta and learned about living lettuce. Yes, living lettuce. Living lettuce, I'm told, is, is something that's locally grown so it can uh, can replace potentially the imported lettuce we get in the winter. It doesn't need to go into the fridge and requires no energy to store in a retail outlet, meaning less food waste. Joining me now to talk about living lettuce is Ruben Howling. He is the general manager of Howling Nurseries in South Delta. Ruben, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Well, I didn't think I, I'd ever be talking about lettuce, but uh, in the last uh, two to three months, uh, it has been making the news in regards to the cost. Uh, you know, uh, chopped romaine lettuce um, uh, selling for six ninety nine. Uh, a bag of three hearts of romaine I was looking at is eight ninety nine. A significant cost uh, for for folks uh, who obviously who eat lettuce, use it in their salad, all those types of things. And, and there's a variety of reasons why it's happening. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Howling's Nursery there in Delta when it comes to something called living lettuce. What is living lettuce? Living lettuce, it, it is unique and in the fact that it is truly a living plant. And that means it doesn't come in a plastic container or it's not um, cut and put in the uh, refrigeration. It actually is rooted into a cube with recycled coconut husk, and it's growing in our nursery the way we raise them like that, but it's also growing in the store, and it continues to grow at home. Um, that allows the store uh, some unique abilities because they don't have to refrigerate it there. Um, it has less food waste. It saves them energy, gives them flexibility in merchandising. And the same is true for uh, for your kitchen. It doesn't go into the crisper drawer. It stays up on your windowsill or your counter where you can uh, enjoy it, engage with it, and uh, and harvest the, the leaves as necessary. Hmm. How did you come about uh, with the idea of the living lettuce? How did it start? It started after we modeled it after our living basil. So our living basil is something that's been widely distributed across BC. And it might be something that people recognize at the grocery store. Um, and with the lettuce, we thought we would take that same format. We introduced it uh, this spring at the um, Grocery and Specialty Food West in Vancouver. And uh, there we got to speak with uh, produce managers and, um, and, and different uh, grocery representatives uh, where they got to touch it, engage it, and ask questions. And, and from there, uh, it started uh, with uh, with a few uh, retailers who were willing to take a risk with us and give it a try. Wow. Um, and so in this case, uh, y- you would just keep it on on your counter and it would continue to grow. You take care of it and you take as much as you need when you need it. That's right. And the idea is that when we do... Um, have it ready to leave the uh, greenhouse and go to the store. We call it harvest ready. So we've grown it all the way to maturity. So if you wanted to use it as a single harvest, um, we think that the uh, economics are there and it, and it does give value to the uh, to the buyer. But the ability to continue to grow it and harvest from it is uh, kind of a unique property and, and an advantage that we don't think uh, any other product like it has to offer. 
Well, now, uh, I brought the issue of uh, the cost of lettuce, and uh, it is it is quite expensive for a variety of reasons, which we've uh, covered on this show and many other shows here on CKNW. How much is your living lettuce selling for? Um, we're hearing stores uh, retailing right now between $3.50 and $4. Oh, not bad. And, and, they, and what retailers can people, if they are interested in this living lettuce, what retailers can they find um, uh, the food product? Okay, well, two that I can uh, point to immediately because we do work with some distributors and they can spread it around. But we do know that um, both the Otter Co-op, uh, which is in the in the South Fraser uh, region, um, carries it. And we're also working with distributors who are supplying the uh, the new Fresh Street stores. And um, we're trying to increase our production quickly to, to keep up with the demand that both of those are asking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, recently I was just reading an article in the Washington Post, and they talked about uh, the Netherlands and what an ag tech uh, giant it has become. It really is the epicenter, not only just for the production of food, one could argue, but also the research into uh, different types of seeds. It's a, it's a sort of a food powerhouse in many ways. Um, one could argue that, you know, BC should be up there in the world in regards to research, development, and uh, indoor growing and, and use of technology to maximize um, uh, our, our, uh, our investment. Um, how do you think we compare against the, the rest of the world? Uh, I always think that, you know, we, we're a really solid B student and we could do a lot better, that we got a lot more, more potential in this province. Uh, what's your sense of it? Because you're much closer to the ground. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and the Netherlands is certainly um, a, a region of the world where a lot of us growers uh, even originate from and we look to for, for guidance and technology. Um, where we can lead is there is, yes, that the, the, the technology and the efficiency, which is really important to produce economically, but also our access to energy. And uh, that's important because, you know, our competitors are not only in, in Mexico, uh, where they grow in, in, in much warmer climates, but even our neighboring jurisdictions like Alberta, where growers there have access to, to lower heating costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that plays a big role as well. And just attracting uh, investment and land costs are, are, are very much different here in, in the lower mainland as well. What uh, enticed you into uh, being a farmer, being in the food business? Well, um, I mean, if we can even talk about this lettuce specifically, uh, what I mostly enjoy about it is is fundamentally what makes it unique, and that it's a living plant and that you harvest from it on your windowsill or kitchen counter. And see, when people engage with their food and they engage with us and reach out to us for, let's say, growing tips and plant care advice, that's really rewarding because you get to talk to your customer about something that you are both passionate about. And in return, they help us improve the way we grow our plants. And it also, we learn from them what the new varieties uh, they're interested in, what they're excited about. And I think that direct feedback and the way people get back to us like that is is very unique and it's very rewarding. And, and um, it's probably not something that a lot of other um, agricultural producers or maybe even um, uh, other grocery types uh, experience themselves. Yeah. And so once again, uh, the lettuce sells for about $4, I think you were saying? Yeah, between 3 and a half and 
And it, it's available uh, at at, at uh, Fresh, uh, Freshco, I think you said, and Otter Co-op, right? It was Otter Co-op and uh, Fresh Street Market. They are starting to carry it, and we are working hard to increase our production quickly so that we can uh, match the interest from uh, from distributors and, and other uh, chains who are uh, knocking at our door right now. Oh, that's wonderful to hear, and uh, I think it's a fabulous idea, Living Lettuce, who thought... It's here. It's cheaper than uh, what you're seeing from a lot of imported uh, lettuce as well. And uh, once again, focuses on agriculture and technology as well. Ruben, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. And and we thank you, Jez, for bringing this to everyone's attention. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.